Good morning, everyone. Once again, I would like to thank Pastor John MacArthur and Pastor Mark Tadlock for their kind invitation and for the privilege of being here at this pre-conference for a second time. I also hope to see some of you, many of you, in the Shepherds Conference in the coming days. I was honored and humble uh, the first time I was invited to speak to this gathering two years ago, and I would say that I was not less honored or less humble this time around when I received the invitation to come back. I consider this opportunity a sheer evidence of the grace of God, so thank you, Mark, for your kindness. Before we go on, let us pray, and then we'll read briefly my text for today. Father, we, uh, we thank you for sending your Son to complete the work of redemption on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you for drinking the cup that none of us could drink. Spirit of the living God, thank you for completing in us the work that was began the day we believe. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, blessed Trinity. Amen. Amen. My text for today is very brief and it will be very familiar to you. It is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 19 and verse 30. John 19, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I purposely selected this passage to speak to you on this 500th anniversary of the Reformation because I firmly believe that this verse, and in particular the phrase, it is finished, it is directly related to the controversy that developed in the 1500s under Martin Luther. At that time, the Roman Catholic Church taught that a man can be saved in several different ways. One, through baptism, which according to the Catholic doctrine, uh, would be able to forgive any sin committed before the person was baptized, and a sacrament through which uh, an infusion of grace will take place that would grant salvation to the person. After baptism, people could be forgiven either by the purchase of an indulgence or by visiting one of the sacred places that Rome had designated back then or through the sacrament of penance practiced after the confession of sin or even by participating in one of the crusades that ended in the 13th century. Of these teachings that I just mentioned to you, the one that really irritated Martin Luther was the selling of the indulgences, which 
basically consider that you could obtain forgiveness of sins in exchange for a donation to the church with the express purpose to finish the construction of the St. Peter, St. Peter's Cathedral. Although some of that donated money ended up in different places at the time. Now, early on in his life, Luther believed the teachings of the church, and although he put into practice the doctrine of confession and the sacrament of penance, as you know, he couldn't find peace for his soul. I don't have the time to go into the detail of how Martin Luther discovered the doctrine of justification by faith, but some believe that anywhere between 1515 and 1519, Martin Luther discovered that it is impossible for man to be justified by the works of the law. In fact, the first thesis of the Heidelberg's Disputation in 1518 stated that the law of God cannot advance humans on their way to righteousness, but rather hinders them. Luther, Luther's understanding of the salvation of man was enhanced as he continued to study the word of God. So Luther came to believe that the doctrine of justification by faith alone was the principle upon which the church falls or stands, or stands or falls. This teaching came to be known as the material principle of the Reformation. It was the essence of the movement. It was the substance of the movement. Benjamin Warfield said that in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the Reformation lived and moved and had its being. Now, I am preaching on the phrase, it is finished, because even though we always remember that faith is the means of justification, we may not forget that the ground of such justification is the perfect obedience of Christ to the moral law of God during his life and the perfect passive obedience of Christ on the cross. When Christ said it is finished at that moment, he announced the end of the law which he fulfilled in its entirety and he proclaimed his death taking the place of the sinner. So from this point on and based on Christ's active obedience during his life and Christ's passive obedience on the cross, can, can, God can declare a sinner forgiven and just when he places his faith on Jesus Christ's finished work of salvation. God's elect were justified by Christ at the cross when he said it is finished. Romans 8.30 tells us that God predestined, called, justified, and glorified those whom he foreknew from eternity past. Every action expressed in past tense. In other words, at the cross, Christ did not make us potentially justifiable, but rather he's justified his own 
This was accomplished when he said, it is finished. Now the application of that justification would have to wait until the sinner's repentance would take, would take place. As you know, the phrase, it is finished, is one single word in Greek and even in Aramaic. And in Greek is tetelestai. Someone said, it is the greatest word which the greatest man utter on the greatest day. And some probably, perhaps, have thought that the greatest day in the history of mankind was the first day of creation when God opened his mouth and the universe came into being. And certainly that must have been an incredible day. But I would argue that the greatest day in the history of mankind was the day Christ hung on a cross in a hill, on a hill called Calvary. I would say this because the day God created the world, believe it or not, the world was destined for ruin, which took place by Adam's fall. But the day Christ pronounce that word, tetelestai, it is finished, creation was destined for glory. That moment at the cross was the climax of human history. History had been prepared for that one single event. From the fall of Adam, two different stories began to be interweaved. The history of the Hebrew people after Abraham and the history of the world that did not know God. The Egyptian empire came to power and enslaved the people of God for 400 years. And then for hundreds of years, one empire after another did exactly the same thing. The Assyrian, then the Babylonian, then the Persian, then the Greek. And finally, the Roman Empire. In each case, the Hebrew nation was under slavery. And yet, at the appointed and the fullness of time, as Galatians 4.4 tells us, God sent his son to the nation of Israel, born of a woman and born under the law. At birth, he began his work. At death, he finished his work. It was all finished. Tetelestai, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said that this single word was an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. And then he added, the single word of this single word would need all the other words that have been pronounced or that can be pronounced to explain it. It is completely immeasurable. It is high. I cannot reach it. It is deep. I cannot understand it. The entire Reformation movement hung on that unique word, tetelestine. The finished work of Christ at the cross is the ground of the justification, of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So in many ways, things did not begin in October, um, did not begin in October 
31st of 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the cathedral on Wittenberg. But in reality, it started about 2,000 years ago on a Friday afternoon when a Jewish rabbi promised from all eternity was hung on a tree on a place called Golgotha and was nailed to a cross being accused of blasphemy before the Jewish Sanhedrin and accused of being a revolutionary before the Roman authorities. That man had been born in a manger for 30, for three years. He taught just what the father told him to say and did just what the father told him to do. And for 30 years, he lived in conformity, in perfect conformity to the law of God. So that Messiah, promised from by the prophets, completed his mission, and then, then the night before his crucifixion, he went into an upper room, and met with their, with his disciples. And at some point during his conversation with them, he interrupted the conversation and began to speak to his father. It was an inter-Trinitarian conversation. And some of the words are recorded in John 17 and verse 4 says this, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished, that's the end, the works you have given me to do. The story was put into motion in eternity past when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gathered together. They had a meeting. They, they could foresee the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of creation, and they decided to make a plan. So the solution to the rebellion of Adam would be the crucifixion of the Son. So the Son offered himself as a sin offering. And that's why First Peter 1.20 says that he was prepared before the foundation of the world. And surely he was. The redemption that we know of was not plan B in the mind of God. It was plan A from the very beginning. The drama of redemption was unfolding and what began in eternity past was concluded when Christ was nailed to the cross. On that cross, we heard from it some of the most beautiful, some of the most precious words that ever came out from the lips of our Lord. First, a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Then a word of salvation. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. A word of love. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. A word of anguish. Eli, Eli, lava sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A weight of suffering or human need, I thirst. And then, a word of victory, it is finished. And finally, a word of relief. Father, 
Into your hands I command my spirit. The revolution that has transformed the world began that Friday when Jesus said, it is finished. Allow me to read this paragraph about the meaning of that word tetelestai. Someone wrote in the original language, the word tetelestai appears in the perfect indicative tense and in the passive voice. The perfect tense indicates that the progress of an action has been completed, but the result of that action continues. It continues permanently. In other words, Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. That which he came to do was completed. What he did, he did it in favor of the sinner. And that is why the verb is in a passive voice. Because another has done it for you and for me. But the effect of that ransom is eternal. It will never end. The word comes from the root teleos, which means complete, to bring to an end. It is the last act that completes an action. Now, John doesn't tell us what did Christ finish at the cross, But the rest of the revelation of God fills in the blank. And also the way the word tetelestai was used in antiquity can also help us in different ways. Servants, for example, or slaves use the word when they finish a task that has been commended to them by their master. And Christ at the cross was that servant who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But he came and left his glory. And when he completed his task as a servant, he was able to say, I am finished. It is finished. Tetelestai. Artists tend to use the word in the past. When a painter or a sculptor finish his work, he will look at it, and if he was pleased with it, he would use the word tetelestide. And that Friday afternoon, the te- tapestry that God has been weaving since the fall of Adam and Eve was completed. Christ could look at it as an artist in some ways and say, this is also finished. He became the reality of every shadow that we saw in the Old Testament. Moses was the shadow, the perfect prophet that God would send, his own son. Aaron was the foreshadow, the final high priest that would come. And there he was offering his own sacrifice on the cross. And David would be the foreshadow of the true, holy, and benevolent king of the universe. And there he was dying on a cross only to resurrect and ascend into heaven. So on the cross, Christ completed the picture and converted the the shadow into reality. Now he could be satisfied with the tapestry that had been interwoven. The priests. The priest would use the word in a different way. They would inspect a lamb. They would look for any imperfection. And if the lamb was found to be without defect, if it was found to be uh, without blemish, then they would look at it and say, 
tetelish tie. So that day, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world went to the cross and he went there without blemish, without any sin, without any defect, and he offered himself. So there you have the perfect priest without sin offering the perfect sacrifice unto God. And he as a priest could have said, Tetelestai, it is finished. No blemish. No defects. Merchants would use the word when there was a debt that had been left open, but that was finally settled. And after the fall of Adam and Eve, there was a real debt between God and man. Man had a debt, a moral debt, to pay to God. Mark Johnston says that Tetelestai was the cry of achievement that creation had been waiting for since Adam's fault. And of course it was. We know from Romans 8.22 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So that day Christ paid the debt that you and I had pending before God. Now the person who puts his faith in the person of Christ, in the finished work of Christ, could go to the cross, could raise his hand, and could say, I am guilty of fornication, only to hear Christ saying, pay in full. The next person could go to the cross and say, I am guilty of abortion, only to hear Christ saying, your sin has been blotted out. The next person could go and say, I am guilty of homosexuality to hear Christ saying, your sin has been made white as snow. Or someone could say, I am guilty of adultery to hear Christ saying, you are forgiven. And the forgiven, or the forgiven that the person received, the forgiveness that the person received is based only on the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, done so perfectly that when he finished, he said, Tetelestai, you owe nothing, pay in full. When you look back at the Old Testament and you find this incredible Psalm 22 that speaks about how Christ was treated and how he felt at the cross, in verse 6, there is a very important verse that some had taken the time to study and analyze to give us some insight into it. This is what verse 6 says of Psalm 22. But I am a worm, I'm not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. That word, worn there, in the Hebrew is the word Torah. And listen to this. This insect was able to produce a certain type of red dye used in antiquity to dye different types of material. The dye was released when the insect was crushed. This is a perfect illustration of Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53.10 says that on the cross, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. 
And when that happened, his blood was shed. And when his blood was shed, we were sprinkled with his scarlet blood. And that way, our sins are forgiven. Henry Murray says in his book, The Biblical Basis for Modern Science, when the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never live again. The eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood. From the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What an incredible illustration of the work of Christ on the cross, shedding his blood. And by his blood, sprinkling, sprinkling us and having our sins forgiven. Now, having covered all of that ground, we need to ask two questions. When Christ said, Tetelestai, what did he finish? And number two, was the cross really necessary? Was there no other way to accomplish redemption? Let's answer the first question. What did he finish at the cross? Well, to begin with, Jesus put an end to the sacrifices that had been offered in Israel since the time of Moses. But even before, at the time of Abraham, when the priest entered the temple, he never sat down. There were no chairs in the temple. And that was a symbol that the Sacrifices needed to continue because the blood of the bulls and the goats were not able to forgive the sins of the sinners. So that went on until Christ died at the cross. And when he offered himself that day, when he pronounced that word, Tetelestai, listen to what the book of Hebrews says about what he did. After making purification for sins, he sat down, first time, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because there were no more sacrifices to be offered. It was all done. It was all finished. It was really tetelestai, completed. Then Christ put an end to the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in him. The first prophecy appears, as you know, in Genesis 3.15, when it was announced that Satan will bruise Christ's heel, but Christ will bruise Satan's head. So Tetelestai proclaimed the mortal wound on Satan's head. Then Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, Colossians 2.15. It was the cry of victory. It was the cry of victory that resounded throughout the entire universe. When Christ pronounced that last word, it is finished, hell trembled. No reason to fear Satan any longer. And we have to remember that we are told by John in his first letter, 3.8, that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So when, the, when Jesus pronounced that word, that destruction of the works of the devil began at a grand or a large scale. 
on the cross, Christ stopped Satan from using his accusations against us. You may remember the verse in Zechariah 3, how you see Satan accusing Joshua, the high priest, because he was having filthy garments, symbolic of his sin, and how the angel of the Lord stood there and rebuked Satan and reminded him that he was a branch plucked out of the, plucked from the fire. Well, from that point on, Christ's elect were forgiven just waiting for that application or that justification that he accomplished at the cross. There was no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And primarily, primarily that is due to what happened precisely at the cross where he died condemned in the place of the sinner. When Jesus said, Tetelestai, he put an end to the covenant of the law. He fulfilled the law completely. And in fulfilling the law, he made it obsolete. The Hebrews 8.13 passage tells us so. And look how Colossians 2.13 and 14 tells us what happened at that particular moment. When you were dead in your transgressions and the and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all us all our transgressions and having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which were which was hostile to us and he has taken out of the taken out of the way having nailed it to the cross nailed to the cross the law that accused us the law that justly and perfect perfectly condemned each one of us, that day he nailed it to the cross. So at that moment, Christ inaugurated a new covenant, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace. So Tetelestai was not only an end, it was also a beginning. Now let's answer the second question. Why was the cross necessary? Or was it? Some have said that God being infinite in wisdom should have multiple different ways to redeem man from our sin. But we know that whatever way he chose, whatever he decided to do must have been the perfect way. So the cross of Christ was necessary in the first place because Adam's fall plundered the human race so deeply that we ended up with a radical and pervasive depravity. And the radical and pervasive depravity requires, requires a radical and pervasive redemption as represented by the cross. It is the cross that helps me understand the gravity of my sin. When we see the punishment imposed on a righteous man who was spat upon, undressed, beaten, pierced, and hung, that cruelty visited upon a holy Savior teaches me, teaches us 
the severity of our transgressions against the law of God and the holiness of God. So the preacher who leaves out the cross offends the holiness of God. The cross of Christ was necessary because we had a moral and infinite debt against God, which require a moral payment of infinite worth, the blood of the only begotten of God. As Arsis Prol says, Adam committed cosmic treason against God. Listen to these comments by Richard Phillips in his commentary on the Gospel of John. Sin is a personal affront to God's holy honor, and he must receive his personal burning wrath. Sin is a rebellious transgression of God's law, and he must be punished for God's perfect justice to stand. So exceedingly great is the gravity of sin that you owed God for your sin a debt that you cannot repay, and at the same time, you cannot be saved unless that debt is paid. God's gracious provision, his saving gift to you, is the atoning death of Christ, which he now calls you to receive in faith, giving yourself to the Savior who gave himself for you. Boy, that is so well said. When Christ died, he purchased you and me from the market of a slavery. The slavery of sin. I am living a ransom life. My redemption was accomplished at the moment of his death. And our obedience should be Basically, an expression of gratitude to our God. So the preacher who does not preach the cross has no gratitude for what Christ has done for us. Number three, the cross of Christ was necessary to propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God. As you know, propitiation is the turning away from wrath by an offering. And in an age When people do not want to hear about a wrathful God, I think it is good to remember that Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. His wrath is real. He had to be propitiated, and many would consider this to be a primitive idea, but it is not. It's a biblical idea. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.25 that Christ was publicly displayed as a propitiation for our sins. And Hebrews 2.17 basically says the same thing. As Richard Neighbor, Neighbor says in his book, The Kingdom of God in America, liberalism tells us liberalism is guilty of preaching a God without wrath that brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. Liberalism 
is guilty of preaching a God without wrath that brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Whoever does not preach the cross of Christ denies the wrath of, the wrath of God against sin. Number four, the cross of Christ was necessary because man was alienated, alienated, alienated from God. Pardon my action. Romans 4.18. We were his enemies, his real enemies. And we were in need of reconciliation when, when Christ came and went to the cross. And there he accomplished for us what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And to think that all of that was from him, nothing from us. That's an amazing concept. Something that we can, is beyond our comprehension. It is too high. It is something that we cannot reach. And at that moment, at that particular moment, Paul adds in 521 of Second Corinthians that he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is exactly what Paul came to understand and made him so free that at one point he thought he had walked into the, the doors of heaven had, had been opened and he walked into glory. That is exactly the effect that he should have in every single sinner that understands his condemnation and what Christ did at the cross. Our reconciliation, reconciliation was accomplished when he said, Tetelestide, and to think that the only motivation to do that was the love of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That was the motivation for sending the son. So the preacher who does not preach the cross does not believe or even hides the love of God. And that is not a small thing. Number five, the cross of Christ was necessary because the cross teaches me the weight of God's justice. The satisfaction of God's justice was the reason for Christ's atonement. Up until the 11th century, can you imagine this? 1,100 years up until then, the leading theory of the atonement in the Western church was the ransom theory. And then Amsel challenged that idea at the end of the 11th century and contended that man's debt was not to Satan as has been taught before, but to our holy God who gave us his holy law. God had said, the day you sin, you should surely die. And Psalm's entire explanation on the atonement was offering his book, Why the God-Man, written in 1095. And Psalm challenged and debunked the ransom theory paid to Satan and established the basis for the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. Christ died in our place to satisfy God's justice. So the preacher who leaps out of the cross hides the holy justice of God from his audience.
the cross of Christ, number six, was necessary because he bore our guilt. Time and again, studies have shown that one of the most frequent reasons for people to visit the psychologist or the psychiatrist or the therapist is the sense of guilt with which they live. Many parents, they look back and they feel guilty because the way they raise their children at a time when they do not know better. As a physician, I can tell you the number of women that I have seen guilty of an abortion that they had when they did not know the truth, and now they don't know what to do with their guilt. How do you handle that? How do you handle the guilt of the father who thinks that he is responsible for the suicide of his own son? The only answer to each one of them or for each one of them is the cross of Christ. It is the place where you could take your guilt, doesn't matter how big it is, and you could leave it there at the foot of the cross. He bore our guilt once and for all and were made free in him. So the preacher that does not preach the cross leaves his congregation loaded with guilt. Number seven, the cross of Christ was necessary to show the grace of God. Ultimately, it was what forced, in quote, God to nail his son to the cross was his grace. In his grace, he wanted to forgive us. He wanted to. In his justice, he couldn't just violate his holy God. He could have sent all of us to hell and justice would have been served. But instead, he sent his son so that he would go through hell on earth, if you will, so that we may be a spare of hell and be reconciled to him and enjoy eternity with him forever. So the cross of Christ reveals the wisdom of God, the justice of God, his law, his mercy, the love of God, and the grace of God. The preacher who does not preach the cross has no value for God's grace. And for all the above reasons, and therefore, the Apostle Paul said that it, it was his ambition to preach Christ and him crucified. The preacher that leaves out the cross, the son or the son, and offends the father. He dishonors the son, and he offends the father. And to think... That man's sin could have been forgiven by the sale of an indulgence irritated Luther to no end. And he must have irritated God even beyond. Penance, sacraments, visit in a sacred place would not do. And to think that 500 years later, the Roman Catholic Church, 80% of Latin America, where I live, is still believe and follow this doctrine, is still believe that through penance and sacraments and visiting sacred places and things of that nature, people can be forgiven of their sins and some of, some of the penalty in purgatory can be distinguished. None of that would do it. Only the penal substitutionary sacrifice of Christ can atone for the sins of the human race. 
When Christ said, Tetelestai, he was finished. He was over. There was nothing else to do. He was paid in full. Nothing to be added at all to what he had accomplished. All you can do is to receive his perfect gift of salvation by through by grace, through faith in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And Taiwan, I need to finish. But just remember this. In every other religion, the key word is do. In Christianity, the key word is done. Tetelestai. It is finished. What an incredible Savior. Nothing else to do, just to believe. <laughs> Father, thank you that whatever, whatever was to do, he did it. And it's all done. And now we are all forgiven. Thank you. To the honor and glory of our precious Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.